You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Hello, I'm Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior research fellow and associate director of academic and student programs here at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm here with Don Boudreau. Don is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's also a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, and the Martha and Nelson Getchell Chair for the Study of Free Market Capitalism at the Mercatus Center. His most recent book is The Essential Hayek, um, and Don is here to talk with me today about public choice economics. So thanks so much for coming in, Don. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so can you just start by telling us, what is public choice economics? It's the use of the economic way of thinking applied to politics. It looks at politics realistically and not romantically. So what makes public choice unique relative to other ways of trying to think about political questions? It gets rid of the romance that infects so much political science and thinking about politics. It looks at people as they are, Mm -hmm. as flesh and blood human beings with the same flaws, the same self-interest that human beings are rightly assumed to have when they act in the private sector. And amazingly, that connection between the use of the realistic assumptions in the, uh, that are used when we analyze the private sector wasn't made for the public sector until just after World War II when Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and Kenneth Arrow and a few other people launched the public choice revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, where does this idea come from in the first place? that we should think about the political actor differently instead of applying these same rules? Uh, Jim Buchanan uh, often gave credit to uh, the America's founding generation, particularly James Madison. Madison was one of his great heroes. And Buchanan and Tullock often said, they said in print, I heard him say it privately quite often, they said that somewhere along the way, from 1787 until the mid-20th century, uh, people forgot that government is not manned by angels, to use Madison's term. It it came to be viewed as something that's above humanity. It's something that transcends ordinary human normalcy. And Buchanan and Tullock simply uh, sought to return political science to the state that it was in when James Madison was, was writing, but in doing so, using the tools of modern economics, which have proved so successful in improving our understanding of private markets. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes this particular approach to politics, studying political questions that was developed by Buchanan and Tulloch and some of these others, what makes it different from the way economists have traditionally thought about public, or maybe even still think about political questions today? Still, too often think about political questions in in this unfortunately mistaken way, do most economists today. Um, The the difference is, the way economists, uh, not so much Adam Smith, and there were exceptions along the way, but by the time the mid-20th century rolled around, the, the, the Western powers had just defeated the, the totalitarian Nazis, and now the Western powers were involved in this Cold War with a non-democratic Soviet bloc. So democracy is riding high, and people, including economists, very prominent economists, uh, insensibly slipped into uh, 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 the, the assumption that 
politics somehow elevates human beings into something superhuman. Mm -hmm. That, that uh, if not voters, at least politicians, to the extent that they respond to the democratic will, they uh, act in the interest not of themselves, they act in the interest not of special interest groups, they act in the interest of the, the, the general good. And Buchanan and Tullock quite simply looked around and said, well, on this assumption, we can't explain much of what we see. We can't explain the predominance and persistence of tariffs. We can't explain uh, the manner in which regulations by government bureaucracies are actually carried out as opposed to what's written in the statute to describe how they'll be carried out. And so Buchanan and Tullock, I say Buchanan and Tullock, by the way, because they are the two most prominent founders of public choice. There were many other people along the way who helped to found it and contributed to its development. Buchanan and Tullock, in essence, said, look, in order to better understand reality, we have to look more realistically at the political process, at voters, at politicians, at government administrators, and at judges. We have to look more realistically at them. These are people who have uh, self-interest, just like private sector uh, business people and consumers do. These people do not have uh, perfect knowledge, uh, just as people in the private sector are rightly understood to not have perfect knowledge. Economists, until that time, and again, still too many today do, economists have this had this bizarre um, duality where they were very good at, at pointing out market failures and market imperfections, uh, uh, bad, self, you know, bad incentives, uh, imperfect knowledge, uh, greed. And then the, the economists say, well, let's turn it over to the government. They'll solve it. Not thinking to ask, well, wait a minute. We're turning it over to the same human beings who we identify in the private sector as having all these, these imperfections. And never was the connection made, or too rarely was the connection made, between the flaws that people have in the private sector and the, the, the way that the public sector should operate. To this day, Jamie, as you know, you can pick up a newspaper and you can read many prominent economists, identify a problem, be it real or imaginary, and they'll just slip into the uh, conclusion, therefore, we need government to solve it. Well, maybe we need government to solve it, but they never bother asking the critical question, uh, how will government solve it? Will government, with its imperfect people who man it and who go into the voting booths to vote for the people who man it, will government do a better job in all of its imperfection than the market will do in all of its imperfection? And Buchanan was very clear to always point out, he said, look, because the ultimate question, really, uh, in, that economics always boils down to is what is the proper role of the state versus the proper role of the private sector. When we want to compare the, the performance of the state to the performance of the private sector, we have to compare like to like. We cannot compare uh, an idealized, unrealizable uh, public sector to the actual real-world private sector. The actual real-world real private sector will always be inferior to the public sector. And so if you do that comparison as it was done almost exclusively prior to the public choice revolution, then there's this great demand for government services, a great demand for, ex for the expansion of government, because people say, oh, well, look, the government always works better than the market. And Buchanan says, no, 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 uh, the, the market is indeed not perfect, but nor is the government. And when we look at the government sector using public choice analysis, we see that it fails in a lot of the similar ways, in a lot of ways similar to how the market fails. Indeed, in some ways, it, it fails 
even worse, because in many ways, the incentives they face in the public sector are worse than the incentives that they face in the private sector. So you get worse outcomes. But, I, but either way, it's not a conclusion-driven science. It's a science that simply says, when we want to understand the proper respective roles of the state versus the market, we have to compare the two in a way that uh, uses the same assumptions about human motivations uh, in one as is used in another. You bring up this issue that it is dangerous to compare the real-world version of one system with the fictionalized or idealized version of a different type of system. Uh, what are some examples in your mind, historical or contemporary, of some issue that an economist might get wrong oh, if they ever, fail oh. to take <laughs> some of these public choice questions into account? Oh. And well, we, we, we don't have enough uh, videotape to <laughs> allow me to list them all. A couple of examples. One is one that I'm, uh, I'm familiar with in my own research, um, and that's antitrust. Uh, so if you look at the, the theory of antitrust in the United States, you know, markets uh, aren't perfectly competitive, and they're not. Right? And so in order to correct this problem, we'll call in the antitrust uh, administrators, and they'll fix things. Right? Well, the antitrust administrators have their own incentives. Antitrust administrators uh, are not perfectly informed. They do not have ideal incentives to satisfy consumers. Their incentives are to satisfy political constituencies. And when you look at the actual history of antitrust, as opposed to the idealized theory of what antitrust was supposed to be, uh, what you find uh, is that antitrust uh, has largely been used not to promote competition, but to stymie it. This is a conclusion that the vast majority of people who have studied the actual history of antitrust come to. It's a surprisingly well, surprisingly widely accepted conclusion uh, among antitrust scholars. A more recent example, I'm just picking them almost at random, is the, 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 the carbon tax issue. So there's this alleged problem with too, many, too, too much carbon being emitted into the atmosphere. Let's assume for argument's sake that that is, in fact, a real problem. It does not follow from that, that therefore we should empower government to solve the problem, because uh, although economists, many economists leap to that conclusion, because uh, the, the, the same poor incentives, the same flawed in institutional structure that, may, that might be at work causing carbon emissions to be excessive, are also in play in the public sector. So we get these imperfect decisions made in the public sector. And so we can't assume that just be, even if there is, in principle, some idealized solution to how much carbon should, how much carbon emissions ought to be reduced, we can't assume that if we give power to government officials to bring that solution about, that they, in fact, will do it. Uh, uh, they may get it wrong, uh, just out of pure intellectual error. Uh, more likely, says the public choice scholar, is they, these officials will be sat, will have strong incentives to satisfy powerful constituencies. And so the actual way in which government will deal with the carbon emissions problem is not to uh, uh, bring about a solution in an apolitical way that satisfies some scientist sitting in a laboratory, but instead in a way to uh, enrich politically powerful constituencies, probably at the expense of the general public. Right. Uh, when did you first encounter the ideas of public choice? When I was an undergraduate at a place called Nichols State University in South Louisiana, 
I, ha I had a very, very good mentor, a man named Bill Field. And uh, I remember going to his office one day and he said, well, you should read the works of Jim Buchanan, James Buchanan. And James Buchanan, the only James Buchanan I knew was this guy who was president before Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I, didn't think he, I knew he wasn't talking about this guy. So who's James Buchanan? He gave me a book by Buchanan called What Should Economists Do? It was just published by Liberty Fund. And it's filled with many of Buchanan's best and most accessible essays. And so I, I was immediately hooked. It made a lot of sense to me. And I guess Buchanan wrote in a very accessible, common sense way, repeating in one form or another just what we were talk, we've talked about here in the past few minutes. And that is, look, uh, the government is not manned by angels. It's manned by human beings. This is not a crime. This is not a slam on government per se. It's simply a plea for people to be realistic about government. It's simply a plea for people to uh, n not assume that when you give government more power, that it will necessarily exercise that power in the way that you want it to be exercised. It will be exercised in the way that the incentive structure uh, that prevails in the government sector determines, not in the way that some uh, uh, apolitical scientist uh, or apolitical economist thinks it ought to be exercised. And Buchanan repeated this theme uh, in this book and in his many other books in, 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 in one way or the other, and it just a, a, appealed to me greatly. Uh, and then fortunately, my first job was at George Mason when Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tullock and the Public Choice Center were here. They had moved here just a few years before I uh, took my faculty position in 1985, and Buchanan won the Nobel Prize in 86. Uh, and, so, and that was a very satisfying uh, event because it confirmed for those of us who had long admired Buchanan's work, in particular in public choice scholarship in general, it had, conf it had it conferred some much deserved intellectual credibility on this uh, branch of economics that it, 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 it didn't quite have before it should have had it, but it didn't, it didn't quite have it. When Buchanan won the Nobel Prize, how did that change what it was like to be a public choice scholar? Was there a difference in kind of interest, attention? At first, yeah. So back in, he won the Nobel Prize in October of 86. And uh, I mean, I, w and I was a young assistant professor back then. So my perceptions, no doubt different from what it would have been had I been a more senior scholar then. But my perception back then was that public choice did get more attention, uh, certainly in the public media. You saw Jim Buchanan and public choice being mentioned more frequently in, in na by national columnists such as, such as George Will and William Sapphire. Uh, I think, I, well, I know it had an effect on the economics profession. The prize did not have the effect that I thought it would have, that I know Buchanan thought it would have, and that we all hoped it would have. The too many economists today remain ignorant of public choice. Not, by ignorant, I mean not, it's not that they've read it and said, mm, I don't think it's right. They, they just remain ignorant of it. Uh, they just slip into this still old-fashioned mode of being very clever and adept at identifying market imperfections and then assuming that there is this, there is available this angelic transcendent agency called the government that as long as it's democratic, uh, will solve these problems. That's how too many economists today reason, and it is shockingly unscientific. And, and so it's a shame that uh, uh, public choice remains as, 
as out of the mainstream as it is, although it is more in the mainstream now than it was 35 or 40 years ago. We could have a whole other conversation about the incentives within the economics profession itself and why that ever came yeah, to be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Have, I have thoughts on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we get too far down the direction, though, I want to ask you a little bit more about your own work. Um, so in addition to your academic research and your work at George Mason and the Mercatus Center, you also have a blog you run, Cafe Hayek. Hayek. Yeah. Um, and there was a related book that came out, Hypocrites and Halfwits, A Daily Dose of Sanity from Cafe Hayek. So how have you used some of these public choice ideas in that more popular conversation in your academic work? What role has it played for you? The origins of that book, indeed the origins of the blog, is that I write a, I write a lot of letters to the editor. And these are short little things I send off to newspapers and magazines. And most of them, certainly the, major, well, yeah, the majority of them, uh, are, uh, uh, or many of them, uh, deal with myths that typically pop up in newspapers or in, in popular magazines. Uh, people have very, very weak knowledge of American economic history and of American political history. Um, so, so, for example, about antitrust, you, it's not uncommon. You read a letter to the editor in the New York Times or a column in the Washington Post, and you'll have someone saying, well, you know, back in the glory days when, when uh, Woodrow Wilson was in the White House, he was using the antitrust department to attack monopolies and help the little guy. And in my own research, because I've done, you know, on the antitrust issue, I did some, some, some firsthand archival research. So I, I, that's, that's not true. It's, that, that is not what the antitrust department was, was doing back then. It had, uh, uh, it was protecting private interests under the guise of protecting public interests, but it was, it was creating rents and special privileges for powerful political groups at the expense of the general public. And so it's easy to point out in these letters, look, look in fact, here's what happened. Um, the minimum wage is that most people think that the minimum wage in the United States uh, was uh, motivated by a desire to help poor workers. Well, in fact, anyone who knows the history of the minimum wage in the United States understands that, in fact, it was a desire to protect the profits of northeastern textile mill owners in, in Massachusetts and, uh, uh, and New England and the high wages of their workers there. Uh, it was aimed at, re at, at artificially restricting the demand for the products of the southern textile mills in Georgia and the Carolinas that were, at the time, arising. And so these are very public choice insights. You look at the history of the minimum wage, you, you see no public interest at all. You see very, very greedy, uh, let's make the sausages kinds of interests at work. And pointing these things out is, is, is rather fun. And I point them out in my blog all the time, uh, partly in the hopes of I mean, when, when, when people understand, when they better understand the history of something, um, they, they uh, I, I think, can become more appropriately critical of that something, as opposed to just having some economists talk about the theoretical reasons why that something may be suspect. I feel like doing historical and empirical research on these kind of questions, it's almost as like detective work. You can almost say, follow the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that is, if, if you have to summarize public choice in just a few short words, that's as good a summary as you can get. Follow the money. Um, uh, but having said that, I, I don't want to leave people with the impression that public choice scholars deny that ideas matter. Uh, sometimes, there are a handful of public choice scholars, I think, take the thing, 
take it too far and will and, and will insist that ideas don't matter. The only thing that matters is the alignment of special interest groups and the, and the narrow political incentives that that government decision makers face. I don't think that's true. I think ideas, in fact, do matter. Uh, uh, I do not doubt that that public officials, their chief motivation is to get and get elected and to remain in office. Uh, but be, because ideas do matter to the general public, uh, elected officials are interested in, in uh, uh, using that fact also as a means to getting, to getting votes. So ideas do matter. There are certain things government officials simply cannot do, uh, no matter how profit, profitable it would be for a special interest group, simply because the, the general public won't tolerate it. Um, but with, within the broad confines of, of what the public will tolerate government doing, that's when public choice is really at its most explanatory. Uh, it, it, it helps us understand why tariffs still exist. It helps us understand why American sugar farmers have been coddled by the government now going on 32 years. It helps us understand why we have minimum wage legislation. It helps us understand, indeed, a lot of the details of environmental regulation. Environmentalists uh, and, and people who don't look at these things carefully, they assume that, well, you know, the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and the, uh, the EPA, these are all, you know, good envir environmental stewards out there to protect the world against the, uh, the, the, the rapacious and polluting capitalists. And the story is a lot more complicated than that. There are some, some noble ideas behind it, uh, but the details of it are very, very gritty and, and, and public choicey, we might say. The, 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 the skill of politicians to adjust the ways that these programs are carried out in ways in, in order to uh, line the pockets of their cronies is, 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 is it's really quite something. It, 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 these kinds of rents are created and distributed quite frequently, again, all under the guise of, of promoting the public good. Okay, now for someone who has maybe read a little economics, maybe not, um, but they certainly haven't read any public choice, what would you recommend that person pick up to read some more? As a public choice primer, basically, you're asking. Yes. Yeah, the, there are a couple of good ones. By far the best one, I believe, is a book by Randy Simmons. He's a um, professor at Utah State called Beyond Politics. It's the second edition of a book that's, that Randy wrote uh, many years ago uh, uh, with uh, Bill Mitchell. But now it's in a second. It's a very, very uh, good, clear, and complete introduction to public choice. That's great. And now for you, what is your f favorite work? You're marooned on the desert island, and you have to have one public your choice public book. choice. What is the one book you can take with you? Can I give two? They're, they're close. <laughs> yeah, you can they're, give they're, two. Yeah, I have to give two because they're very close. Uh, I'm really quite fond. I mean, I'm tempted to, to, to say the classics, the, the calculus of consent. These, this is a great book. But quite honestly, in that situation, uh, I would want with me the, the two public choice books. One is a book by the philosopher Lauren Lemaski and the economist Jeff Brennan called Democracy and Decision. It came out in 1993. I think it's a brilliant uh, uh, contribution to public choice scholarship. It explains why ideas matter and how they matter in the, in the context of public choice. And related to that uh, is our colleague Brian Kaplan's 2007 book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, 
which extends the, the Brennan-Lamasky uh, view even further. So those would be my two favorite books. Great choices. Yeah. Uh, well, right. thank you so much for talking to it's me here pleasure. today, Don. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening. We'll put up some links to these books Don mentioned. Uh, let us know if you have any questions, any comments. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.